This is a Federal News Network podcast. Members of Congress are off this week for Passover, Easter, or Ramadan. With any luck, they're also thinking about getting after that 2022 budget before they return and before they turn all their attention to the midterm elections. We get the outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, there were some green shoots of maybe they would get after budget bills fairly quickly when they do return. What's the schedule and what do you see ahead? Well, as you noted, they're off this week for the second week of a two-week recess. But then looking to the period ahead, which um, there's a lot to do and not a lot of time to do it because of the midterm elections and extra recesses that happen so they can go and campaign in the fall. Um, But what we're likely to see when they come back is more hearings on that budget request that President Biden set up in March. Um, And then also thinking more about, um, you know, how to write the bills that that budget prompts. Um, The real issue always is in recent years, what the top line is going to be for these bills. And one of the reasons it took so long for the fiscal 2022 budget to get signed into law in March is that they didn't have a top line until this calendar year. So what people have been talking about is what do we do to get that done earlier? How do we get in a room? How do we make progress? Um, There was some optimism from Richard Shelby, who's the ranking member in the Senate on the Appropriations Committee, and from Patrick Leahy, who's the chairman there. Um, They're both retiring, so they don't have that same election campaign pressures, but um, they are going to be key to coming up with a top-line number. So I think what they're doing is agreeing to start finding an agreement on this and working with their house counterparts to try and get a top line early to make this an easier process because the top line opens up how much you'll spend on the 12 bills and then you start arguing about the policy and the individual line items but we're still probably a ways away from seeing bills come out but maybe the discussions will kick up once they're back in town well you know federal agencies and people that concerned with getting the money on time always hope for peeps from congress even though they get sardines but maybe we'll get some nice multicolored peeps that taste so sweet when they get back <laughs> and the u.s china competition bill that's still very much an active burner situation that is before they left for their two-week recess, um, both chambers of Congress named the negotiators who are going to get in a room and hammer out a final version of this. Um, It's going to be a pretty robust conference. A number of members were named from both the House and the Senate from a lot of different committees, reflecting how broad and sweeping this legislation is. One of the provisions that's at the heart of it is $52 billion over several years to give to manufacturers to incentivize opening up chip production facilities, semiconductor production facilities here in the U.S. to try to create a greater domestic supply of those. The shortage around chips has been a driving force here because chips are in everything now from cars to even refrigerators to appliances to you name it. So having a better domestic supply there is a big deal. We saw President Biden go down to Greensboro, North Carolina last week and call on Congress to get this bill to his desk. So there's pressure from the administration to get this done. There's bipartisan support for it. There's also bipartisan kind of opposition to some of the elements from folks who are afraid that it's corporate uh, welfare, as they would call it, whether it's from the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party who doesn't want that, or even some on the conservative side who don't think that that's the right approach to to doing this. So um, we'll, we'll see if they can make progress on it. There's a lot of different issues in here from foreign policy where it comes to China, to human rights concerns, to reauthorizing things like the National Science Foundation and pumping money into NIST. So there's a lot of agencies who will be watching this bill and its fate because it could, in some cases, directly give them money, like that $52 billion, or at least set up authorizations for future years that Congress will come back to. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And as Congress is out there encountering their constituencies back home. And almost every other person you talk to now has perhaps a mild case, but the COVID is very much extent in the land. And that 
affects their feelings perhaps toward Title 42 policy with the immigrants coming from the southern border, I guess every border, and then also the idea of a COVID relief package. Anything that could move from what we saw before the recess when they come back there? It's possible. There was a bipartisan deal in the Senate on a $10 billion package that was focused on domestic needs when it came to COVID. So it was much more about therapeutics and and the needs to um, have diagnostics and things like that in this country. The agreement wasn't loved by everyone because in particular it left off any international aid and helping to distribute vaccines abroad. So even though there was this $10 billion package, there was already talks about another package later on for international needs. They couldn't get it to a vote, however, because they couldn't come to an agreement on whether or not to have a separate vote on this Title 42 idea, which is a policy that the Trump administration put into place saying because of the pandemic, we're not going to allow people to cross, stay where they are. The Biden administration said that they were going to lift that. There's bipartisan opposition to doing that um, and a vote on on the Senate floor, especially with some of the members there, could have been successful adding that language to the bill and possibly complicating it in the House. So they kind of hit the pause button on that. The Title 42 issue will remain alive when they come back. And there's a bill pending that would restore it with five Democrats already signed on to it, including folks like Kirsten Cinema and Mark Kelly in Arizona, Maggie Hassan up in New Hampshire, and a couple of others. Hassan and Kelly in particular are up this year, may feel some pressure around um, the political ramifications of that, policy considerations as well. So we'll see what happens with Title 42, because as we've seen, the COVID situation seemed to be getting worse just as they were heading out on their two-week break, with even some members testing positive towards the end of that week. So um, we'll see if there's pressure to expand that package, push through what's there, um, or have a broader debate on what to do, because there will be continuing needs for money as the year goes on. And before the break, again, they were making some progress on nominations, not just the Supreme Court, Katanji Brown-Jackson, but there were many lower-level appointees throughout the bureaucracy that they were getting to. Will that momentum return, do you think? Well, the Senate seems to fill a lot of time with nominations, and it takes time to process them. You bring them up, you file for cloture, two days later, you start having votes. So I would see Charles Schumer putting more of these nominations up in the coming weeks, especially as they wait for legislation, things like the China competition bill. Also, you know, if their spending bills ever come to fruition or if they can get back to their budget reconciliation, those would come to the floor. But they'll continue chipping away at these nominations, both to agencies and also to other courts, the district and circuit courts. That's been a priority of the Biden administration. In some ways, looking ahead to the possibility that they might not have the Senate after the November elections and making sure that they have as much momentum as they can to fill the courts and fill these executive jobs um, while they do have all the levers of government. Yes, because if you do look at the various cable channels, there's some hysteria over midterms now starting. And if you look at the elections November and they have a couple of months to try to campaign, it seems like everything backs up to early summer, really for Congress in a year like this. Is that about the right timetable? That is. I think what what you can do before the August recess is key, because you'll come back after the August recess, have a few weeks in September, maybe into October, but very much campaigns will be at the front of the mind then, um, trying to get back to your district, trying to be with the voters that you need to try to win over. In some cases in the House, try to win over new voters, because if your district line shifted because of redistricting, you might have a different population that you're representing than today than you would if you run and win re-election. So um, there's a lot that feeds into this. Midterms are bad for the president's party normally, and the headwinds are pretty strong with the economy. So, And also, I think the important thing is there's very slim majorities in both the House and the Senate. So it's not going to take a lot for the Democrats to lose control of either chamber. So all that is going to feed into the thinking and the agenda setting for the next several months. And the meantime, the Congress itself, the physical plant of Capitol Hill, 
clamp back down because of some of these cases that uh, some members themselves had before they departed? To an extent, but the general direction is openness. Um, Members really want to see the plans for the Capitol to reopen. We saw more tourists coming in towards the end of March. Um, There are plans for a phased reopening to get it back to normal so that more groups can come in and see their lawmakers, see the Capitol, uh, walk through Statuary Hall and and see all those sites that make it such a great place to visit. So I think the trend is still in the reopening direction, but we might see some, you know, remasking or more people being careful with that in the short term as, you know, D.C. has this mini wave it's going through. Well, when you see your member in person, don't be disappointed. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. A good story helps us understand the world and how to make it better. That idea drives what we do on the Daily News podcast, Post Reports. We bring you stories that empower people. You know this is a fraud, right? Why are you calling people doing this? And that hold powerful people accountable. Wait, you did what? We had to sue your office twice to get our hands on these documents. My name is Martine Powers. I co-host the show. Take the trusted reporting of The Washington Post wherever you go. Follow and listen to Post Reports. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.